Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, taking down a Russian cyber invasion with some help from our friends. The closing message from CISA for Cyber Awareness Month and the health of the acquisition workforce at VA. It's Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Today is the closing day of ACT-IAC's Executive Leadership Conference, Imagination 2022 in Hershey, PA. I am here in Hershey covering this event, and you'll get highlights of the discussions and my conversations with lots of thought leaders in the coming days on the Daily Scoop podcast. The Justice Department's collaboration with foreign law enforcement organizations has resulted in the disruption of a Russian malware operation. Adam Hickey is Deputy Attorney General for National Security and Cyber at the Justice Department. At CyberTalks, he tells CyberScoop Suzanne Smalley about the Cyclops Blink operation. His highlight of that conversation begins with some background from Suzanne about the operation. For those who don't know about it, the Justice Department used remote access techniques to disrupt um, a Russian botnet. And it was really a novel prosecution um, and one that I expect we'll probably see more of as cyber crimes get more complex and sprawling. So can you talk a little bit about the actual mechanics of how that investigation worked to the extent that you can and why um, this might be a a precedent for future prosecutions? Sure. Uh, First of all, good morning. Good to see you again. And thanks all of you for being here. Thanks to CyberScoop for having me. So just just to give a little bit of background, The Cyclops Blink operation uh, began when, um, well, I won't say it began. We were working very closely with a company called WatchGuard uh, in investigating a botnet that seemed to prefer their small home and office routers. Uh, It was infecting thousands of systems around the world. And we had associated that activity with the GRU. So we're in February of this year. We see a gathering storm in Russia and Ukraine, and we see this botnet proliferating, which seems to be the successor to another botnet, VPN filter, that also infected routers that we worked to disrupt in 2018. So given where we are in time, we're working closely with the company and the UK and DHS. And in February, February 23rd actually, um, a cybersecurity alert goes out jointly with the company advising about the existence of this botnet and with instructions on how to take it down, how WatchGuard device owners can remediate, get the malware off and so forth. We continue watching after that point, but by mid-March, we only see about a 39% decrease in the botnet's capacity or its infection rate based on the information we have. So merely sharing information didn't seem to be enough. And there could be a variety of reasons for that, right? There's a lot of threat information out there. System owners aren't always able to digest all of it for all of the systems and all of the applications that they're running. So we have a choice to make. Are we going to watch the botnet continue to grow, um, knowing that malware on routers like this can be used to disrupt service, it can be used to facilitate intrusions to the endpoints on the network, um, can be used to launch other attacks, can scan for credentials, can enable other activity, right? And this is a state actor which, at this point, has engaged in actual armed conflict. So the FBI develops a means of impersonating 
um, the malware, the botnet uh, C2 uh, layer, and goes to court and gets a warrant that authorizes them to communicate with this intermediary layer of bots. So the way the botnet operated, there's a panel, sort of like think of it as a main control node, then there's an intermediary layer of a few dozen C2 nodes, and through those nodes, instructions are passed to the client bots, the thousands around the world, US and foreign. The FBI develops a tool that allows it to communicate with the malware uh, on the C2 layer, uh, pick a serial number of the device so that we have a record of what we've done, uh, delete the malware, and close the remote management ports on the WatchGuard router that was allowing the actor to exploit those routers. Um, all of that was authorized by a warrant. We had probable cause to believe there was evidence and instrumentality of a crime on these systems, and a judge agreed with us that it was appropriate under Rule 41 to take that malware off. And then, of course, we publicize the activity for a variety of reasons. One, we want system owners to know that this vulnerability is out there and is important. Two, we're going to give notice to the individual computer owners, right? So we're going to serve a warrant either through their ISP or directly on them so they're aware of this. That, I think, reflects the kind of sense of urgency we have, especially when it comes to potentially destructive or disruptive malware that is associated with a foreign uh, state. Great. Um, such an interesting operation, and um, I am excited to see what else comes uh, out as you guys continue to find new ways to um, investigate cybercrimes. Um, one thing that's come up from critics is the privacy considerations, mm -hmm. and I've read that you've compared it almost to rescuing a kidnapping victim on private land. Um, are there, have you all set up proactive guardrails um, for moving forward, how to consider this kind of, you know, effectively breaking into individuals' computers? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a very fair question, and the answer is yes. So we take these kind of operations very seriously. Um, we apply what I would call a, a principle of minimalism, and we view them as an operation of last resort. So as I said, merely sharing information wasn't enough. We weren't in a position where we could simultaneously reach all of the system owners needed to take that C2 layer out. So if we tried to do this manually, just by contacting every computer owner, the botnet operator would have been able to quickly right. promote client bots into C2, and we, we never would have been able to break that chain of communication between the, sort of say the, the headquarters, the source, and the bots. But what we look at in deciding whether to do something like this is, is the operation necessary? Is this, is this the best way to get at the problem? Do we need to act simultaneously? Um, can, by working with the provider, in this case WatchGuard, can we be certain that we aren't going to cause more harm, that there won't be collateral damage? Can we tailor our tool or technique in a way that makes the lightest possible touch, does the least amount of intrusiveness, gathers the least amount of information? In this case, we thought system owners might want serial numbers because if they ran multiple mm -hmm. WatchGuard devices, they'd want to know which one we actually right. uh, impacted. Um, certainly, we find going to a judge and explaining why we think we have probable cause and getting the buy-in of an independent, neutral third-party magistrate, uh, all of these factors go into whether we think this is the right tool for the job. And so while I think it's fair to say we are becoming more aggressive in the sense that we want to mitigate this activity, we're not becoming casual about it. We view these operations as incredibly serious moments 
and we think we have a responsibility to be transparent and be scrutinized. And so I welcome the criticism because it ensures we stay, I think, on the right side of the line. Great. Um, so a few months ago, I interviewed you about a breach of the administrative office of courts um, system. And you disclosed that justice hasn't filed anything very sensitive other than on paper since last January, um, meaning January of 2021. Um, so I um, have been covering this fairly and, and tracking it closely. The AOC announced this intrusion the same day as insurrection um, in January of last year, more than a year or about a year after it happened. So some, you know, especially reporters have wondered why there hasn't been more transparency about this. And I realize you're not with the AOC, but you are the Department of Justice's liaison. Do the people have a right to know what was compromised? From what has been released, it seems fairly sweeping. Um, you know, were witness names accessed? And, and I mean, this is the people's court system. Should they know more about what happened? Yeah, so let me give me a little bit of background. So you're right, on January 6th, the courts announced an apparent compromise of what's called CMECF. It's the case management system where, among other things, we file motions and pleadings and criminal charges and civil litigants file uh, in that system as well. The overwhelming majority of what's in CMECF is public. It's a, it's a public records database by design. Right. An incredibly small amount of material in there uh, is sealed material, such as an arrest warrant or charge for someone we haven't yet apprehended. Um, so an apparent compromise of that system is uh, a significant moment for the Department of Justice and the courts, and I'm grateful that we were able to work so closely with them in addressing it. Um, I think it was a model, not only of DOJ and DHS working together to respond to a system owner's needs, but we were able to work through some fairly complex issues that arise, as you might imagine, when you're dealing with a separate branch of government. The courts are, no, are understandably going to be uh, cautious in how they work with the executive branch, given the sensitivity and their independence as well. So I'm pleased we were able to work through that. And it's interesting to me, it, it's the lesson, one of the lessons from that, as you mentioned, we sought a change in the business process of the courts. We, we worked with them to develop an alternative means of filing that small portion of court documents known as highly sensitive documents that shouldn't be online. And the lesson there, as I, I think I mentioned in our last conversation, is that just because it's convenient to put everything in the same container and put that container online doesn't mean that that's the best thing to do from a risk management perspective. And that's challenging for system owners because you're not necessarily going to find it easy to bucket the same set of data in, and slice off that sliver that's particularly sensitive and treat it differently. But that sometimes is what risk management requires. To your question, which I haven't forgot about, uh, yeah, look, as to any significant security issue, we try to balance a desire for transparency with the need to protect an investigation, the rights of privacy of system owners, and the like. So for questions about that, I think I'd refer you to the courts. Adam Hickey of the Justice Department with CyberScoop Suzanne Smalley at CyberTalks. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veterans Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. 
National Cybersecurity Awareness Month is about two-thirds over now. Eric Goldstein is Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS. At CyberTalks, he tells moderator Jordana Siegel of AWS what CISA is emphasizing this month. The theme of Cybersecurity Awareness Month, uh, which may be cyber-heavy, but shouldn't every month be cyber-heavy, um, is see yourself in cyber, uh, which is sort of a tagline. But If we unpack for a moment what that means and what CISA is trying to drive with that tagline, see yourself in cyber, it's that every person has a unique role to play in cybersecurity. And that can be a bit generic or abstract. So I'll I'll drill down into it a little bit. You know, it means that if we look at the cybersecurity landscape today, I think we can all agree that the level of risk we are facing as a country, as a technology community, isn't sustainable. And so we need to make some fairly fundamental changes to make progress toward a future state where we are dealing with fewer damaging incidents. We are dealing with fewer significant vulnerabilities. So we have more trust in the security and resilience of the technology environment that, as we all know, is a critical dependency for everything that we do in our daily lives. And so the see yourself in cyber tagline is trying to get at that core problem. How do we, on the one hand, create and enable and empower the next generation, not only of cybersecurity professionals, but also individuals that understand the risks and benefits of technology and can be fluent and literate in this environment to minimize risks for themselves, their families, their communities, their businesses, but also how can we ensure today that we recognize cybersecurity not as an IT problem, right? It's become an aphorism in our field, but it is is deeply and intrinsically true. How can we make sure that whether you are a CEO, a board director, a general counsel, an economist, a, a sociologist, a PR person, You have a role in driving better cybersecurity in this country. Um, You have a responsibility to ensure that your organization, your community is taking steps to reduce your risk. And how can we create that culture where cybersecurity is a community challenge, a societal challenge, and not a challenge that is shifted off to the IT folks uh, to manage on their own? Thank you for that. That's, that's a tall order for one month of activity, so I think it'll set the foundation um, for, for the year ahead, frankly, and will be a good catalyst for additional collaboration amongst all of the parties that you mentioned that need to see themselves in cyber. Um, next, I just wanted to talk about a little bit of a related topic. Um, we had the pleasure of hosting uh, CISA Director Jen Easterly um, at our headquarters in Seattle last month when she was visiting uh, the area and we had a workshop on cybersecurity education and um, workforce development with members of the community, the education community, other private sector organizations that are all focused on on this important issue. Um, And certainly it's an administration priority with a request for information out to stakeholders right now to um, inform the development of a new strategy on um, cybersecurity education and workforce development. From CISA's perspective, what are some ways government and industry can work together to build the cybersecurity workforce pipeline? It is a a great question, and we know that the workforce challenge is the base layer risk that is undermining our ability as a country and as a global community to make the progress we need to in cybersecurity. And there's really two core challenges that we're facing. First is just the current and extrapolated future delta 
in the qualified cybersecurity workforce. And you've all heard the statistics. I'm not going to recite them chapter and verse here. But we have too few uh, individuals today and even in the future to manage the risk we are facing. But the second part of that challenge is that the cybersecurity workforce today does not reflect the diversity of our country, which is in turn a national security challenge. And so we need to deal with both of those challenges together, right? To say, how can we build a cybersecurity workforce with the skills and the breadth to meet the risk we are facing today and tomorrow while ensuring that that, that that workforce reflects the diversity of our country, which again is an enabler of accomplishing that first goal. Um, the administration, as Jordana noted, uh, is, uh, just issued a request for information that is going to be the foundational step to create a national cyber workforce strategy uh, that is going to really lay forth uh, how we are going to tackle this challenge as a country because government is not the sole answer or even the primary answer here. This has to be a challenge that we meet between the private sector, academia, nonprofits, and government all working together. Now at CISA, we're focused on this challenge from a few angles. First, we're working on ensuring that within our own agency, as, as the nation's cyber defense agency, we are taking steps both to make sure that we have the, the talented best-in-class workforce we need, while again, ensuring that that workforce meets our goals for diversity, for equity, for inclusion. We are doing a, a huge amount of recruitment at historically black colleges and universities, at minority-serving institutions to make sure that we are recruiting at organizations where there are extraordinarily talented, passionate, motivated individuals who don't always find their way into either the cybersecurity workforce or the federal cybersecurity workforce. And as part of that mission, it's about narrating the criticality of the cybersecurity field. And an important part here is the truism that if you're working in cybersecurity, whether you're working for the government or a, or a vendor or a solution provider or an owner operator, you are managing national security risk to this country, right? You are part of the cohort of individuals who is keeping our country safe from nation state adversaries who seek to undermine our ways of life. You are keeping our country safe from criminals who seek to steal information for their own gain. And making sure that we all understand that all of us in the cybersecurity community are working towards a shared goal. We are all sharing a common mission. We think is a really good way to evangelize and get passionate individuals to move into this field. And then noting that in government, you know, the, the era of somebody coming into government for a 30 or 40 year career in security or IT and then leaving and retiring, those days are over. Right? And so now we need to make clear to young people in the workforce, they can come into government, they can serve their country, they can secure critical, critical networks for a few years, they can go back out to the private sector, and then maybe someday come in. We have some new hiring authorities uh, at DHS called the DHS Cybersecurity Service, which actually helped us catalyze uh, this kind of model. Uh, but that's really intrinsic to our goal to say, let's get the, the brightest individuals, regardless of background, have them come in, serve the country, do good work, go out and come back. That's, that's thank you for that. <laughs> There's a lot to do there too, a lot to unpack. But one of the themes that, you know, kind of rises to the top of that for me is about public-private partnership and just sort of the, the dimension that comes into the workforce development um, angle. And as we both know, public-private partnership is at the heart of CISA's mission, certainly from your time in the private sector, from my time um, uh, at CISA and now in the private sector. And I wanted to ask you, under your leadership, how has CISA evolved its partnership with industry? And some, what are some of the results of your efforts that you're proud of? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the lessons that I think we learned as a community 
overall, say, the past decade is the traditional model of public-private partnership in cybersecurity didn't scale, didn't match the agility of the adversary, right? That model was characterized by episodic, bi-directional sharing, uh, platforms that, that weren't agile, weren't fast, and frankly, left us continuously behind where the adversary was heading. And so what we've tried to build at CISA, but with partners across government, the private sector, and, and internationally, is a model that we characterize as persistent collaboration. And by that I mean, very practically, getting practitioners and operators from critical companies across sectors, uh, including partners like AWS, um, and, and agencies across government, and international partners, all working together in shared collaboration platforms continuously. So that when there is a new exigent risk, uh, like the log for shell vulnerability, uh, like Russia's criminal and, and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, we can all come together and work as one unified cyber community. We did this for the first time, as mentioned, uh, around, uh, around log for shell. We scaled it up. Uh, subsequent to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where we developed a written cyber defense plan and then brought in partners from the nation's largest cybersecurity companies, cloud providers, ISPs, all with the goal of ensuring that we are maximizing our visibility into risk facing in this country. And when we get information from our other government partners, from international partners, or the cybersecurity community, we can rapidly share that and enrich it. And the best part of this model is it's not relying on government as an intermediary. The, the biggest wins that we have seen are actually not where government adds some unique value, but in fact where a, a partner from the private sector shares information in, it then gets enriched and shared back out. And so by moving to this model of persistent collaboration and then framing that through cyber defense planning around the most significant risks, we think that's how we actually scale at the speed needed to match with the adversaries are heading. Eric Goldstein of CISA with moderator Jordana Siegel at CyberTalks. You can find a link to watch the video of that entire conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. The number one CRM, Salesforce Customer 360 for public sector, enables relationship management, case management, and lots more. You can learn more at salesforce.com government. The Department of Veterans Affairs is missing data it needs to gauge the health of its workforce. That data would help the agency understand who does what and how. Shelby Oakley is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the Government Accountability Office. Shelby, thanks for joining me. It's great to talk to you again. What do we know exactly? What did you find when you looked at the VA workforce, how big it is, what tasks it performs, all of that? Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, we, we took a look at VA's acquisition workforce, which hopefully, as you know and your listeners know, includes contracting officers and contracting officer representatives, program managers, those kinds of folks. And VA has about over 16,000 of these employees um, within the department. And, you know, what we, what we took a look at really was what VA knows, what data VA has on its acquisition workforce what challenges this workforce faces, and then how leadership is addressing and managing those challenges. You write, VA doesn't have comprehensive data on this workforce. What would comprise comprehensive data if VA had it, Shelby? 
Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we thought was going to be pretty easy would be to, hey, give us, you know, all the information you have on your workforce. You know, how many people, where they're located, what their certifications are, locations, retirement, retirement eligibility, that kind of thing. And um, VA was not able to provide us uh, with that type of information. It took about six months for us to get um decently reliable data for us to be able to conduct a survey of that acquisition workforce. And, you know, the reason why having that kind of data is super important is because you have to be able to make data-driven decisions about your acquisition workforce, where they need to be, where you need to, you know, beef up that workforce, where you need to address potentially training deficiencies, um, certification challenges. Um, And without that information, it's tough to see how VA could be making those types of informed decisions about its workforce. Did you find that the agency Shelby was not collecting that data? Was it not collating it well, curating it well? What was the short, what was the problem? What was the shortcoming? There's a couple of issues at play. Um, VA has to rely on two different systems to be able to have data on its workforce. One that's managed government wide and one that's within VA itself. Um, and part of the problem is, is that the government-wide system had done a transition um, in the past couple of years to a new system, and some of that data was kind of lo- lost in translation, um, and so it wasn't updated um, particularly well. And it's not designed, the government-wide system isn't designed to provide the kind of information that VA needs internally. It's more related to certification type information government-wide. And so VA has to rely on that system and its own internal system to be able to um, call that comprehensive data. And they just hadn't done that. Um, And so what we recommended was really to focus on VA taking its data sources and ensuring that that information was reconciled so that it had comprehensive data um, on its workforce. The other thing is those systems rely on manual updates from the the workforce itself. So, you know, making sure that that workforce is indeed updating their own information going forward is one important aspect of it as well. One item that I saw here that was good news, Shelby, you did interviews with members of VA's acquisition workforce. A uh, majority of respondents said they were generally satisfied with their ability to telework. What was the good news and bad news that you found in this in these conversations with the acquisition workforce uh, members themselves? Yeah, we found um, some positive uh, responses from the acquisition workforce. They, you know, gave high marks for the training that's provided through the VA Acquisition Academy. They gave high marks to their immediate supervisors and the environments that they create, um, you know, for them in the workforce and as well as those telework opportunities, which I think that has shifted a little bit more since COVID, um, you know, that that acquisition workforce has allowed the telework a little bit more. And I think that's been a overall a positive thing um, for that workforce. on the flip side, uh, we found a few uh, issues related to workload. Workload is a persistent issue that um, that contract that uh, acquisition workforce has reported for years. Um, only sixteen uh, percent of VA acquisition workforce employees agreed that their performance expectations were reasonable. Um, and you know, Francis, I think this is really related to. VA has just grown as an acquisition organization over the last 10 years. Its, it's contracting obligations has, have increased by 89%. 
they're a completely different organization. And so when you're not having the data to make decisions about what you need in your workforce, then the outgrowth is going to be that kind of workload challenge um, that so many of the the workforce uh, reported to us. There's a job responsibility at VA that you point to a number of times, and it strikes me this must be a very important job, an important role in the acquisition world at VA. The heads of contracting activity, HCAs, what role do they play, Shelby, and why are they so important? Yeah, VA has um, a, a number of heads of contracting activities, and they are the folks that drive you know, the contracting within VA's various different organizations, such as VHA, the Veterans Health Administration, Veterans Benefit Administration, each one of those organizations has their own heads of contracting activity. And they get their authority from the Special Procurement Act, Special Procurement, Senior Procurement Executive, excuse me. Um, And what they're responsible for is management of that acquisition workforce, ensuring that, you know, that workforce is well-equipped and executing the acquisitions on the part of the, the um, department efficiently and effectively. And one of our major findings was um, that responsibility isn't documented. It's not documented in the letters of delegation to those HCAs that they have that responsibility. And so as a result, We saw a lot of uh, variation across the organization and how those HCAs manage those workforces. And, you know, I think that is where we saw some of the um, survey findings that, you know, some of those uh, employees reported less than being less than happy with the role that the HCA plays um, in their, you know, life and world. So documenting the HCA's roles, what does that recommendation look like when it's maximized when when it's been fully fulfilled in your mind is there do you have like an idea of what that looks like or is that up to VA to decide what that documentation looks like to kind of meet the spirit of your recommendation rather than some letter that you might have intended yeah so I think um one of the things that we found in our report was you know that the collaboration between the HCAs and between the office of logistics Acquisition Logistics and Construction, who is kind of the where the um, the CAO, the Chief Acquisition Officer, sits that drives all this thing, hasn't been that great, right? And so, kind of the sharing of approaches for managing the acquisition workforce, the collaboration on that really doesn't occur too too much. And so, I think at a basic level, to fill our recommendation just put in the letter of delegation. You're responsible for managing your acquisition workforce, all aspects of it. And this is what it includes. But I think, you know, for it to be done effectively, that kind of knowledge sharing and collaboration across all of the HCAs is going to be super important to make sure that, you know, you don't have um, vast differences in how this is going. And why that's important, Francis, is because, you know, VA suffers from being a huge organization that folks can just leave one organization and go to another, right? So if you're not managing your organization, well, I can leave VHA and go to VBA and maybe, you know, have more um, support or more training or whatever the case is because of the way that HCA is managing the acquisition workforce. 
All right, that recommendation about the HCAs is uh, one. The other uh, you touched on a moment ago, and that's uh, about the workforce data. And again, taking steps to ensure accurate and up-to-date workforce data is the recommendation. What steps in particular, or is that up to VA to determine the steps that are appropriate to reach the end state that you're suggesting? Yeah, I think a couple of things are going to have to happen, right, is that VA has really been relying on that government-wide system for a role that it really wasn't intended to play, right? And so VA has to figure out um, how does it get that information, whether it's through that government system or through its own system, and then how does it ensure that it stays up to date? Um, And so VA is going to have to make those decisions as to what that looks like, right? And, you know, as as we've reported in the past on various different issues, a lot of VA's internal IT systems are challenged. And so this could require some, some, you know, modifications or changes to existing systems, but we didn't direct that to VA. We, we, we are leaving it up to them to determine how they can get that comprehensive data. We just define what that might look like. Shelby Oakley of the Government Accountability Office. Thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to Shelby's work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like The Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.